Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, joining you from a near 115 miles north of Mar-a-Lago in the great sunshine state of Florida. Joining me from the Commonwealth of Virginia, he is the under, former Undersecretary of Commerce that has served at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Oh, I'll I turn on Alan's mic. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Alan, there he is. How you doing? There he is. I'm good, thanks. And joining us also from the Commonwealth of Virginia, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as the Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral, how are you, sir? Admiral? No Admiral. Alan, can you hear me? I hear you, but I didn't hear Ken either. Didn't hear Ken either. Interesting. Okay. No. Well, we'll keep him on there, and hopefully he'll come back and join us. Uh, what we've got going is uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Hopefully we'll get Charmlet to join us as well as Dan Littner because we do need some Democrats in on this. Uh, but hopefully we'll get their view on this. But there is a lot to talk about. Uh, it has been a week of tariffs, trade wars, turmoil in the White House, all kinds of stuff happening in the Russian investigation. There's all kinds of stuff happening in uh, education that we're going to talk about. We've got to start and talk about, uh, actually, it's a flip-up. Alan, which would you rather talk about, the deal in West Virginia for the teachers or Sam Nunberg? (laughs) (laughs) I really don't want to spend time talking about a guy who's mentally ill and and off of his medication. Um, And that would be the Nunberg fellow. Yeah, yeah. Hey, here's seems, the question I have for you. I mean, we we yeah. already kicked it off. We might as well go with it. Here's the question I have for you: Is here is a guy who was fired from the campaign early on. I mean, mid twenty six. I mean, early twenty sixteen. Uh, less than a year into the campaign, for uh, really ugly racial posts that he had posted on Facebook. And the special, the special counsel, Robert Mueller, seems to think that he has got some sort, of, uh, some sort of evidence that he's looking for out of this guy. Why all of a sudden did this no-name political hack racist all of a sudden start becoming so valuable to the special counsel? Well, First of all, we don't know how many different people that uh, Special Counsel Mueller has uh, has reached out to and questioned. Um, uh, they're, 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 it's not the kind of thing that they announce, and it's not the kind of thing that most people um, want to proclaim that they had the honor of, of doing. So th- there's some unknown number of people, and then there are people that we know were were talked to. It became public information for one reason or another, or people chose to simply uh, self-report. And and uh, and I think one of the reasons that we get all these press reports about the avenues of questioning that that the Mueller people are pursuing 
comes from people who have been questioned. It doesn't come from Mueller. I think we have to acknowledge that that's a very tightly run ship. Um, so the so-called leaks don't come from them. Anyway, they talk to a lot of people. This guy, I mean, think about this guy, right? First of all, nobody's ever heard of him until yesterday. Secondly, this was a campaign desperate, desperate for volunteers, for people of experience, for people of quality, because so many experienced people said, nope, not doing it, not going to participate. This guy was part of the campaign, and early on, when they desperately needed talented people, got the act. Tells us right up front that this guy's not A team, he's not B team. Um, and now, all of a sudden, he's hardly a, a top priority, but we don't know. He, his name probably showed up in some emails that, that, uh, that other people sent from way back uh, while he was still on the campaign. So they said, well, let's talk to him. Let's bring him in. Let's look at what he's got. Maybe he's got some more stuff. Uh, and it's kind of routine. You, you make the request. You send a subpoena. And then the guy decides this, this is his chance for a little moment in the sun. And he says, not doing it. Not going to go. So let's go back. And Alan, they're not going to throw go me in jail. And maybe Trump yeah. did something. It's, and then, then he talks about being on his antidepressants. And one reporter said, right. I smell alcohol in your breath, which is why I said, I, 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 I'm not thinking it's, <laughs> it's, it's a yeah. highly productive so, use Alan, of, me, of our time because he's such a whack job. A Justin, can I cut in for a se- one what? second? Yeah, yeah hold, hold on. Joining us from New York City, she is a uh, bar certified attorney in the great state of New York and the Garden State of New Jersey. She is Hillary Clinton's former attorney in the great state of Ohio during the 2016 campaign. She's the one that we know as Sharma Achari. Charlie, give me one second here real quick because I, I just want to give some background to the audience. Uh, what The discussions that there were many yesterday that Alan Moore and that we're going to be talking about on Sam Nunberg, uh, Sam Nunberg is, uh, went on yesterday. It started with an NBC phone call-in interview that he initiated to Katie Tour's, uh, uh show yesterday during the, three o'clock, or the 2 o'clock hour and turned into just this wanton rambling uh, diatribe of, of just how he's not going to uh, appear, he's going to, uh, he, he, he's just going to defy the subpoena, defy showing up in front of, he's not going to produce any of the evidence that it was requested, and then he left the MSNBC show and just proceeded to go on basically every show that he would do and ended up on uh, another MSNBC show at the 6 o'clock hour but it was a bizarre, bizarre series of ranting, just mumbling interviews that didn't make sense, but apparently has gotten the attention yet again of the special prosecutor. Sharma, chime in, please. So I have to first dispute uh, Alan's assertion that no one's ever heard of the guy. I mean, anyone who's been following the Trump drama knows who Sam Nunberg is because he's been one of the most vocal former campaign officials, and he's been cited by numerous 
uh, newscasters and journalists as one of the sources who knows Trump best. He was the source of some of the juiciest quotes in Fire and Fury. So maybe Alan had never heard of him, but most people who follow the drama of this administration know who Sam Nunberg is, and they know that he was fired oh, quite early kind. on. <laughs> Alan is probably reading much more intellectual pursuits than the rest of us, but I certainly have known who Sam Nunberg is for quite a while. You need to elevate your focus, Sharmila. That's true. I yeah. just need to start reading the National Review, Alan. Well, Sharma, um, let me jump in and ask but, this question. But but can I wait? Can I finish? Can I finish my actual thought? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. But regarding regarding Sam Numbers interviews generally, I think that it was actually I'm actually going to turn the tables and say that I very very rarely agree with the Trump administration on on its views on the media. Uh, I love journalism. I respect journalists. And at one point, I really wanted to be a journalist. But I think giving Sam Numbers that airtime was especially towards the end of the evening, was incredibly irresponsible journalism. I think that by the time that CNN interview aired, you could tell quite early on, and I'm not a doctor or an expert, but you could tell that he was having some sort of mental health episode. And I think that he very quickly showed himself to not be a credible source for any sort of reporting. So whether he was you know, under the influence of drugs or alcohol or just having some sort of mental health breakdown, I don't think it really matters, but I think that he was not a credible source, and it was pretty unethical and irresponsible for journalists to to be displaying him like that and to be treating him as some sort of newsworthy and credible source about the Trump administration, which I don't think he is. I mean, nothing he said, nothing he said, and no, none of his reactions to the things that the Trump campaign were saying about him were rational in the slightest. And I think that became so more and more I obvious. I want to come back to. I want to come back to that. I want to. I want to come back to that in a second, Sharmla, but let me go to Admiral Ken real quick. Admiral Ken, uh, when, we, when we talk about this guy being part of the investigation, I mean, this is a guy who said that Roger Stone, who's also a key player in the special counsel's investigation, was his mentor. Uh, this is a guy who was part of the team that, going back to Alan's point, that Donald Trump said, I only bring in the best of the best. Is, is this almost indicative of what we've seen out of the talent pool coming out of the administration? This is a prime example of we are literally dealing with amateurs? Yeah, I think so. And um, and as, as I guess, sad uh, 24 hours later as uh, Sam Lundberg's presentation, uh, I think, is, is, is being categorized uh, characterized uh, both uh, here as well as in some of the other media outlets. Um, I, I I sat there watching Jake Tap watching him and Jake Tapper yesterday, just you know, mouth agape, going, "Holy crap! This is this is this is this is amazing." Uh, but yeah, I, I you know, I, you know from a, a purely personal level, I can tell you, you know, when they started looking for people to come into the administration, um, uh, there are a lot of folks that are. Uh, that are just, you know, they've got their, you know, sensible wits about them. Just said, yeah, you know what? For whatever reason, I smell a clown car coming, and I don't want to be on board. And uh, and this is what you've got. Now, what's really sad here is that um, there are some, some some pretty, you know, one or two really knowledgeable folks in the Trump administration. Gary Cohn, for instance, and this whole business about the uh, the the the, uh, the, uh, the tariffs. And I'm so, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. 
this is a guy that's basically saying, hey, this is not a good thing to do. And yet, you know, the president in his own, you know, unique form gets his head wrapped around something right or wrong, and he just runs with it. So he's not even listening to right. the, the one or two, you know, B-team players that he's got in, uh, in, his, in his stable. Uh, and that makes it even worse. Uh, sure. Well, let me go to a legal question with you. Um, number one, the, the subpoena that was served on Sandunberg uh, is pretty definitive. You're going to show up and you're going to produce the evidence that we've requested in front of a grand jury or we'll find you in contempt. You're going to go to jail. I would venture to say that if you were his attorney, you would probably not be advising your client to go in front of every TV camera and news interview that he could get spewing what he spewed. Is that accurate? No, not unless I was clinically insane. (laughs) Or the worst lawyer ever. Uh, It's funny, too, because one of the things that we heard – it's funny that one of the things that we heard during his um, during his interview with Katie Tour is uh, apparently he was getting a phone call from his attorney and he made the comment, "Oh my God, I'm probably gonna get, I'm probably gonna lose my attorney after this." I, I mean, to me, Alan Moore, this just seems indicative <laughs> of if you know you're gonna Again, lose your attorney. <laughs> go ahead, Sharma. I was gonna say again, Justin, more evidence that. The man does not seem mentally sound. I mean, does does this help or hurt Robert Mueller in any way, Alan Moore? Well, <laughs> it doesn't have any particular impact on on Mueller because the guy is so obviously off. Um, uh, he's not listening to any attorney that. that <laughs> that has any business having, having uh, a license to practice. Um, uh, he's, he's messed up. He's got some serious problems. We didn't, we didn't acknowledge that at the end of the day, he did say, yeah, I'll probably cooperate with Mueller. This was after being all over multiple shows and everybody all excited because he made the one comment, um, yeah, there may be evidence of collusion with, between uh, the president and Russia. This after he would praise the, the president and then he would say that he was erratic. He was all over the place. I mean, he's a, he's a mental case of some kind. Um, he, was never, uh, he was never an A or B team player. Um, and most people, <laughs> not us crazies, around here, but most people have never heard of the guy. So anyway, right. um, it, it, it's, it's just, it, it's just a curious little sidebar, but as Sharmila accurately said, the press showed how, how desperate it is, how much it was falling all over itself to come up with anything, um, anything negative towards the president, um, anything that has, that it, it, sort of, controversial um, uh, and and uh, exotic and different. And in this case, I think it's a case of mental illness. And then, so it's really kind of sad and tragic in that regard. Well, and I, I agree with Sharma, though. Justin, I don't, I don't think the press played it, played it uh, uh, with, with, uh, with, with any, uh, any on uh, at all. 
And well, Justin, you, to, but, to but actually respond say, to the question oh, you posed oh, to Alan. Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Charmel. Sorry. Well, first of all, I, I just wanted to also point out in what I forgot to mention earlier is that Sam Nomner is an attorney. He graduated from law school. Like, the man himself is an attorney. So if you want to add an extra layer of, of insanity to all of this. So he's listening but, to himself. But also, when you asked, does it affect Robert Mueller? Obviously, it doesn't affect Mueller personally. But I think, again, it goes to the credibility of the source. And I think that based if I was Robert Mueller or on his team, I would now think that this, the credibility of the source that we've interviewed and the information that he's providing could be compromised. And now this, this person no longer should be considered a credible source for us or a credible source of evidence. His te- especially, certainly not his oral testimony. Perhaps his written communications can still be, you know, can be corroborated and verified and they might still have some credible information, but I would not, I would be incredibly, incredibly skeptical of any oral testimony that he gave. I, I mean, Admiral Ken, based on Sharma's description, this guy is either crazy like a fox or clinically insane. I mean, this is a guy who told the AP yesterday that, quote, he's angry about being asked to share his communications with a long list of people. He continued, he asked, he continued that he doesn't think that the subpoena is fair and that Mueller's team should narrow the scope of inquiry, unquote. Either, either this is the most brilliant legal move in the history of legal maneuvering by saying, okay, you know what, I'll prove myself to be, I will completely uncredit myself as a witness or discredit myself as a witness, and I will completely make myself look like a madman. They'll never call me in front of a grand jury. Or this guy is clinically insane, which is more logical. But, I mean, does he in his rankings maybe have a point of saying that uh, the subpoena may be too broad and asking for 10,000 pages of emails is a little bit overboard? Uh, last question first, no. Um, it's definitely within my understanding of the purview of the special prosecutor to ask that question. First question uh, uh, next is, I don't think Roger Stone would align himself because Stone's been a, Stone appears to be a pretty smart cookie. He's an odd, he's an odd-looking fellow. Uh, definitely a, uh, a snappy dresser right out of the gangster 40s. Um, but uh, has been around. It's been around since the, uh, the you know the Watergate, uh, not, not Watergate, and so not a, not a stupid man. So to believe that he would he would keep someone in his close circle that that's uh, borderline clinically insane, um, it, it defies my belief. And uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but uh, if I was looking to basically get myself out from under all this stuff. Uh, acting like I'm nuts on every major network uh, news uh, channel doing the the, uh, the, the, the pre-primetime news hour certainly seems like a good tactic to me. And I, I will say, you know, as, the other thing that I would say is that as sad as, as it appears to be in retrospect 24 hours later, oh, my God, it was so much fun watching him yesterday. I was laughing my head off. It was awesome. <laughs> Those make for good TV. I do want to defend the Fourth Estate, though, on this. Uh, I'm sorry. One more estate. thing. One, one more thing. One more thing. Joe, Joe Scarborough yeah. characterizes Joe Scarborough characterizes performance this morning 
as impeachment porn. I, I think that's a perfect uh, uh, banner for it. <laughs> uh, so here's the, here's the question for everybody. I mean, you know, to defend our friends at the Fourth Estate in the media, uh, if you're the media, if you're Katie Tour and a guy from the campaign who you know was close to leadership in the campaign, i.e. Roger Stone. He calls up after being subpoenaed by Roger by Robert Mueller. Why don't you put him on and ask him to spew everything? I I'll let me start with Sharma and then I'll go to Alan Moore. So I agree with you, Justin. I think the first one or two interviews on MSNBC, they didn't know they didn't seek him out. They didn't know he was calling. They didn't know he was going to say all those crazy things on the air. That I think you know is understandable that you would put him on how much uh, credibility you'd give to his statements depends. And again, Sam Nunberg has been interviewed many times on MSNBC and CNN. So he was somewhat of a known quantity. I don't think that was wrong. What I think was wrong was really that Aaron Burnett interview when you could see the man unraveling literally every additional minute he was on the air with her. He got more and more flustered. His answers made less and less sense. She even said, I can smell alcohol on your breath. And yes, it was entertaining TV. But at a certain point, you kind of I, when I was watching, I thought, why are they cutting this interview off? This guy, like nothing this guy says can be trusted. You can't, you, you shouldn't have him on just to torture him or just to sort of ha- watch him twist in the wind or watch him babbling all this stuff because he was a man who two, two and a half years ago worked for the Trump campaign. I think that his sort of, his credibility as a source on the administration was compromised. His credibility just generally was compromised. And I think by that point in the evening, there was no there was no real journalistic value, whatever you might say that, oh, he was close to Roger Stone or, oh, he was a player in the early Trump campaign and he he knows people in the administration. I think whatever value he has, a, he had as a newsworthy source was pretty compromised by around 7.30 p.m. Alan Moore? Yeah, I agree with Sharmila. Um, it, 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 no. it, okay. uh, you, you know, you, you, can, you can report on it initially and then you got to pretty quickly realize, oh, we, we, we got a problem here. This guy's got a problem. And then um, uh, as a matter of, of journalistic responsibility and common courtesy, you, you call 911 and you get them off the air. Yeah, okay. Very good. All right, enough about Senator Nunberg, because obviously this is going to be a train wreck that everybody's going to be watching here over the next few days. Whether or not he appears in front of the grand jury, has left to be seen. We'll obviously keep our eyes on that. But uh, this is just added fodder for what has been a bad week for the president. We're going to get into the details of the bad week at the White House. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. This is Backroom Politics Live from uh, the Sunshine State, New York City, and the Commonwealth of Virginia, the National Capital Region. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. I saw you last 
From Florida, New York City, and the National Capital Region, this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to continue the discussion regarding the really bad week that the White House had. Let's talk about the big shocker that had – well, they're all big shockers at this point. But the big shocker that happened last week regarding personnel turnover, it has been a week of shakeups at the White House. The big name – was just one day after we did our show and one day after she appeared in front of the House Intelligence Committee where she claimed that she might have done little white lies for the president, White House Communications Director Hope Hicks departs the White House fairly abruptly and has got everybody scratching their head of who's left that's really 100% inside the Trump camp. Admiral Ken, what is the big significance of Hope Hicks's departure in this? Well, uh, I, well, she was she's been with him uh, almost uh, even before the start of the campaign. Uh, I've heard people refer to her as almost a family member. She's that close, um, and I think it's interesting. I think the timing is interesting. You know, uh, I think she got uh, pulled into the uh, the Porter. Uh, uh, debacle some number of weeks before and uh, was also, I think, aligned with Corey Lewandowski before that. And um, there just seemed to be just this just this aura of just uh, discombobulation around her. And then for her to go and testify that she occasionally told white lies to the president in front of the House uh, Intelligence Committee, uh, and Lord knows what she uh, had to say in front of uh, uh, Mueller's team, uh, I think that she probably, you know, at some level thinks, you know, if if I don't do something here, I may end up in jail. And uh, I realize that might be a stretch, but uh, I, I just, uh, I, I think everything seems that, to happen around that, that White House for a reason. And uh, uh, people who um, who suddenly leave usually have a very interesting story to tell. 
and uh, I, I'm a firm believer in the in the uh, the old saying that there are no such things as secrets, just things you don't know yet. I'm really intrigued to find out what the uh, the real backstory in that is, but I don't think it portends good things for uh, uh, for people looking for good news to come out of the Mueller investigation. Joining us on the line, thank God, because we always need his perspective as a legal advisor. He is he is the former Joe Biden political operative, longtime Democratic political boss, and bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is the man we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, how you doing, sir? I am doing well, and uh, the uh, Hope Hicks thing. I was actually had to go back to uh, evidence in law school to uh, double-check something, and uh, I will gladly take Sharmila double-checking uh, my, my uh, reasoning in, in evidence on this one. Uh, Hope Hicks's testimony, where she used the phrase, I occasionally have to tell white lies on behalf of the president, was kind of a huge, huge snafu uh, for her to say under oath because made her impeachable for the rest of her life uh, because she said it under oath, and you can always use that statement to impeach anything she testifies on ever. Uh, and Sharmal, as an uh, attorney as well, is, is, is your memory of evidence from law school the same as mine? Yeah, I believe it's true, right? She willfully gave testimony about her own untruthfulness. And, yes, that's absolutely evidence that could be used to impeach her, which I think would occur to the benefit of the Trump team. So let me ask you this question. Is, did she – I mean, going off of that, is this a situation where there is some great legal minds behind the Trump team that Hope Hicks just basically discredited herself as a credible witness in anything Mueller brings up? Dan Lipner. Well, there's two, there's two sides of that. So while she cannot be used, can arguably be used to impeach her testimony for anything against the president, she also can no longer defend the president. So she is now neutral. Now, Mueller can actually use her for, as far as the compiling other evidence, but if she actually takes the stand, uh, she she's just a, a, a null character there. But as far as the rest of it, um, she's kind of in a, between the rock and a hard place. So if she screws up somewhere along the line, she can't say, well, honest mistake. It's like, well, how can we believe you now? Uh, but likewise, she can't really defend the president. So it, she, she's kind of in an interesting position. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if uh, this is to Admiral Ken's point, that was part of her dance out the door, uh, realizing that she now has a much bigger problem uh, legally, basically for the rest of her life, but in particular during this administration. Alan Moore, there, or go ahead, Sharmila, first, and I'll go to Alan. Oh, I was going to say, well, I think she's in a similar position now to Sam Nunberg, right, where her oral testimony can be largely or may be largely discredited, but she still can provide value in terms of you know, her written communications and any sort of corroboration that those provide. So, Alan Moore, let me go to you on this. This is, uh, this is something that, according to those close to Hope Hicks, 
Uh, I've talked to a couple of people that know her well, and they're saying that this is a much ado about nothing. She had actually been planning on leaving for some time. I've heard one estimate that for the past uh, month and a half, she had been looking at a good time to step away. Uh, I mean, does, does that still take away the timing and the cloud surrounding her departure? Uh, not exactly something you do on the same day that a lot of other things were happening, like the gun control summit in the, uh, in the uh, West Wing there. The, uh, the, the, the timing was very strange and not helpful, it seemed to me, to Hope Hicks or, uh, or the White House. Let, let, let me, though, push back just a tad. This is always risky business on our two lawyers who say that because she acknowledged occasionally telling white lies, we haven't seen the transcript, by the way, but the reports I saw said that there, there, there were occasions where she would have to, where, where she would have to tell people that the, that the president wasn't available, that he, that he couldn't speak to them then, or he was in a meeting when in fact that wasn't the, the factual uh, case. And that was the, the sort of white lie reference. I would agree it was a horrendous term to use because there's no uh, there's no agreed upon definition of that. But it seemed to me that what she was doing there was 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 being truthful um, because she was under oath and she said occasionally I would have to tell white lies. And I believe from the reports I read that she went on to explain what that meant. Of course, we haven't seen the transcript and that's not how it came to be reported it came to be reported that, oh, she's the president's liar. So uh, having acknowledged that under oath, how can we ever believe anything she says? I just don't buy the notion that, that, that she cannot be believed now or later uh, because of that comment. Anyway, I, I guess we'll see. Um, uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it, the, the timing was such that having done that and supposedly incurring the president's criticism, his, his daughter-like relationship, um, uh, as it's reported, uh, being, you know, how could you be so stupid as to say that? Well, she's, she's 28 or 29 years old. She's been on this amazing roller coaster ride for, for the, the last three years, the campaign and the presidency, before that part of the Trump organization, um, uh, quite, uh, quite a, a uh, immersive experience for someone so young, so, so inexperienced, uh, I would say in both business and government. Um, and her whole world explodes more recently when her apparent um, uh, boyfriend, um, who she helps write statements defending, uh, then turns out to be a wife beater um, has to has to step out, resign in disgrace. Uh, their relationship ends. So she's been under a big microscope lately for uh, her apparent role in that. She apparently had a, she might have had a role, or she was at least present in the famous um, uh, Air Force One uh, uh, writing of a press release explaining what the purpose of Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with the Russians. Uh, in Trump Tower was all about. I mean, she's been present, uh, whatever her role, for some some messy, 
unfortunate, embarrassing, possibly illegal things, and they're not going to not talk to her. <laughs> they they, they want to know exactly what she saw, uh, what she did, and what everybody else did in those events. But coming back to her, she's exhausted. She's apparently told Ivanka and, and, and Jared Kushner, who she, who, who she was very close to, who are under the gun themselves, I need to go. I need to get out of here. She goes up to the hill for nine hours um, and comes out of there with all these immediate reports. Uh, the president says, you're stupid, and she just, it, it looks to me like she says, okay, 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 I'm done now. I really am done. I've been getting ready to go. I've told people. I've talked about it. Now I'm done. And it seemed at that point unfortunate in terms of timing, not the kind of planning that you would normally do, but something that a that a 29 strung out um, uh, a person um, might well do. And there we have it. Um, but she will still be a, ma- a person of considerable interest because of pla- things she's done, places she's been, what she's seen, and. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe she'll at at twenty nine uh, get a big book deal. Um, I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> I mean, Admiral Ken, this is a, a, a twenty eight, twenty nine year old whose life experience was basically as a high fashion model, uh, a marketing person for Ivanka's clothing line, and then immediately thrust into the geopolitical scene by becoming the communications director for the hardest com shop in the country, possibly. Uh, is, is this a matter that, uh, that maybe the Trump organization put her, I mean, just threw her into the deep end, she was way over her head, and it just finally got to her, and that this might be a good thing for the uh, Trump um, White House to do a reset on? I, 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 would, I would say that, that having, having gone uh, up to talk to people and uh, in those committees twice and always being treated with a great deal of cordiality and respect because I was wearing a uniform when it happened and having watched the guy in the suit next to me get grilled like a, like a 4th of July piece of steak. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 um, and so, but that said, you know, we're adults and, um, um, and when we basically sign up for things, um, you have to, you know, do some belief that you've done the calculus and figured out what the upside and the downside, uh, up, up what the upside and the downsides are to the best of your, your abilities. But, you know, we, we've already talked in the first portion of the show about the fact that the Trump organization has – had an ongoing challenge with fielding a credible team to uh, to represent and advise them, and I think Hope Hicks, um, her adventures in the White House, um, and her departure, is just one more piece of evidence uh, to substantiate the fact that these guys. It's amateur hour at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It continues to be amateur hour. It's been amateur hour since day one, and, and you know, and I think if if they showed just a little bit of integrity and alongside with some humility, they might be able to find some people willing to stick, you know, you know, to stick their necks out for them, but that doesn't seem to be in the playbook. And so consequently, uh, I, 
I don't have any. I, I, I have no 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 sympathies to offer to anyone who's gone into that into that uh, that, that crucible, and uh, and and come out um, uh, just a little bit uh, chastened by it. None whatsoever. Let's go to the switchboard. We've got a caller. Caller from the 206 area code. You're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Hey, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Fine. What's going on? What's your question, sir? Uh, well, not really a question. It's more of a comment on where we're at as Americans at this point. Um, been a conservative my whole life. I have never been as disappointed as I am right now. Served this country in Afghanistan as an infantryman. I love my guns. I heard nothing but people talking about the Obama administration getting rid of guns. And if you look back, the Obama administration, the only thing they did was admit that we have a gun, uh, a shooting problem in this country, and he signed guns in to go into national parks. Never took our guns away. And this delusion that Trump was going to drain the swamp and all this other nonsense has been fed to us. And then every time somebody addresses Trump, they just go back to the Obama administration and deflect to Clinton. I mean, what are we doing now as a country? I guess that's the best question. Where are we going? And, and, and when are we going to stop? Is it really true that he can shoot somebody in the middle of New York and, and, and wouldn't lose a voter? It really seems that way because our guns are now starting to be talked about, about disappearing. What do we do? That's that's a that's a that's a deep question, caller. Uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to let you take that one first. <laughs> yeah, it beats the hell out of me, um, uh, caller. We we, uh, we we we've been very critical on this show, the Republicans and the Democrats uh, uh, of this president. Um, one would like to think we could be consistently either supportive or critical based on consistent policy positions. He doesn't have a lot of consistency, whether the issue is guns, uh, immigrants, tariffs, uh, Obamacare, taxes, you, you name it. Um, he, he's, he's been all over the lot. He is a most unconventional uh, president that those of us who, for better or worse, have spent much of our lives in and around uh, the, the Washington, D.C. area. Some of us have worked on the inside, some of us in, in different capacities. Some of us have, have, have been involved in elections. Some of us have been observe, close observers of the scene. Um, uh, we've never seen anything like this. Um, if, if the issue is guns, um, uh, there are there, there are. Americans, maybe as many as 25%, who would like to just ban guns. Everybody else has got a different view. And and uh, I think from a policy standpoint, if we're going to do something, it's going to be that other 75%. Well, and some of the 25% know that banning is not a possibility, so so they can work towards uh, towards compromise. Um, uh, and and we've got a very very divided country now, and um uh, the the social media contributes to that um elections gerrymandering campaign finance um uh cultural divide that you see across the country they all contribute to that yeah 
we muddle through. We work on it on this show. We try to look for for common ground. We we chide each other. We teach, tease each other. We also try to be thoughtful and substantive. Uh, and and while we when we will disagree, try not to be disagreeable uh, in that. And um, and then with those who are religious are doing a lot of praying these days that we can uh, we can make it through this period uh, without uh, w- some kind of uh, war breaking out somewhere or some horrendous yeah. accident. So, Dan, uh, Dan those, are, the, those yeah. are my ramblings on the matter. Yeah, go ahead, Admiral Ken. So, first of all, uh, thank you. Um, uh, as as someone who's also grown up a conservative. And also served um, in, uh, in in uniform, both in peace and in combat. Um, I sometimes scratch my head and wonder, how the hell did we get here? Why is it that this that this person could get elected uh, president of of, the, of, of arguably the, the greatest country that that, that 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 has ever existed on the, on the planet? Um, I Amen. Think the, the the thing I think the thing that 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 uh, I have tried to hold on to as I debate whether I'm going to stay a voting Republican or not um, is the belief that on the back end of this mess, there's got to be some of us left to pick up the pieces. Um, I feel less strong, uh, less strongly about that every day uh, because I think to some extent <clears throat> I start losing faith, but I got to tell you, the call from you uh, has, has kind of pushed me the other way. I've got a little bit more faith in the fact that maybe I'm not crazy maybe Alan Moore and I together and Justin Russell, we're not crazy that there are people out there that are trying to hold on to some integrity and belief that this country is about inclusion. It's about uh, equal protection under the law. It's about following the constitution that at least three people on this call have risked their lives uh, to uphold and defend. And it's just a shame that we have, uh, we have allowed the election of someone, the legal election of someone who I think can barely spell the Constitution, let alone has read it. But uh, thank you for your call, and it's been it's been for me uh, reassuring that that there that there's somebody else sane out there listening to what we're what we're talking about. Charmla, you want to take a shot at the caller? Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with uh, Admiral Ken. I think that it's really heartening. Obviously, I'm not a conservative, but I think it's I think what's going to usher the change in this country is more principled conservatives like the caller, like. Ken, like Alan, speaking out and saying this is not okay, and holding, you know, our elected, their conservative elected representatives to account and to hold them to that same moral code, right? Until voters actually make their voices known, until, until principled voters make their voices known, not just to the president. I mean, the president, unfortunately, has no real moral compass, right? He doesn't care what people think of him. He feels immune or he feels above anyone else. We all know he doesn't react well to criticism, but I think that Republican leaders in Congress, a lot of them still have some integrity left, but they need to be reminded by their voters that they're going to be held accountable for that. That's what's going to make the difference in this country. Dan Lipner. So I I agree with everything that everyone said with one exception that it's too narrow. Um, I've been saying this for some time, and first, thank you to uh, both the caller and uh, all of my Republican colleagues uh, on the show uh, that I I actually do genuinely consider friends, and I I respect your opinions on on many things. 
that said, uh, there is, there is the issue of the the nonsense issues that have frequently taken hold uh, in the Republican Party. That while no one on this show are the people that have, have talked about them, um, I would argue that there aren't enough voices trying to w- within the Republican camp trying to correct for the nonsense issues. So the Alex Joneses of the world, the Breitbarts of the world, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, uh, all of which uh, where, where facts are, are a, a gently used uh, part of their, of their programs, uh, get a surprisingly large audience. And unless trusted voices within the Republican camp say, no, this is wrong, I'm a conservative, and there are principles that I believe in, and these things that are coming out of these outlets are just absolutely false, and they're harmful. I can't say it. I'm a yes. liberal, and so by definition, anything that I say will not be heard from people who are, who are putting their tribe over anything else. So people within the Republican camp have to chime up and speak up. And there have been people who have done that, including the members of the show, uh, George Will, who's a conservative writer who's been out there for a long time, has left the Republican Party. There are evangelical Christians that are Republicans that have also said they can no longer call themselves Republicans because of things the party has done. And heck, even the National Review, which is hardly a liberal rag, has come out pretty hard against some of the issues that have been come up, basically calling them nonsense. But there, that's still not enough. There needs to be more voices correcting for the outright falsehoods and errors that are out there that are polluting the political dialogue that doesn't allow for an actual meeting of the minds because you have a surprisingly large percentage of one party that is buying into nonsense. Not to say that there isn't nonsense on the left. There is. But it's, not, it's nowhere near as pervasive in the party as it is on the right, and hence we have, have the Donald Trump. But unless it's correct, I agree. Donald Trump's not going to be the end of it. And, Caller, just a, just a point of background, I, I started this show about eight years ago with a former member of Congress who was a liberal Democrat, and a former uh, White House insider and Washington operative uh, with a long line of credibility in the Republican Party. We started this show to bring civility and a civil political dialogue back to the political spaces, not just in D.C., but hopefully people across the country would listen to the show and find out that we can talk about these things. We don't have to spew the party line, which we don't. Uh, I have been a lifelong, I've been a lifelong Republican myself. I have been very recently you know, troubled by where I see my party going. It is, a, it is a tough road that we've got. But the problem I have is that if Republicans like me, if Republicans like Alan, if Republicans like Admiral Ken, uh, and people like George Will and, and others that are sensible, that are not buying into the demagoguery and the political line, if we, if we leave the party, we've got a problem because then there's nobody to change it from within. 
if we stay in the party and we can try and change it within, we can try and do it without the demagoguery, the name-calling, and just the political venom that we're seeing in politics. And that's one of the things that we hope when people listen to the show, and we've got a cult following that do. We haven't been publicized. We haven't done a lot of advertising. It's just been word-of-mouth advertising over the past eight years. So people continue to listen to us because they like hearing what real people who deal with this on a daily basis really talk about, not what they see on the talking head shows. So, you know, there's a purpose to what we do here. And and like everybody said, we do it with mutual respect. We do it with a, uh, with a sense of friendship, a sense of camaraderie and a sense of the mission that we can do politics the way politics was designed, not as a media three-ring circus that we currently see in Washington right now. So, caller, first of all, thank you for your service. We always appreciate that. Thank you for calling in. We hope that you'll listen to us a lot more. Tell your friends about the show, and we're gonna so we're I gonna move to on. Say one last thing. Absolutely, caller. Absolutely. Guys, I appreciate you guys all talking. Um, it really shows how strong us as Americans we need to. Uh, come together a lot more. That's one thing that we're really lacking. Sometimes the truth hurts people. I know myself, before I was educated, um, it was hard for me to grasp the realities of evolution until I actually found out that it was true. And accepting truth sometimes is a little hard. Us as Americans, we need to stand under that flag. And we need to be proud of who we are. And we need to start talking and this divide of Fox News, um, which I used to listen to so much until it got into just complete rhetoric and hatred for the left. We need to come together as a country. We need to stand under that flag, and we need to be proud. And just like our founding fathers, the first ones to grab the rifles and fight the British, that was not easy. And it's not going to be easy for us. But we need to stand up and talk and face truth. And the truth will prevail. As a Christian, I believe that. Uh, and um, I, I'm tired of the fighting with Americans and, and even the immigrants that are in this country. They are in this country. They have the constitutional right, and we need to give them what they deserve and treat them like human beings. Not necessarily yep. give them all handouts, but we need to treat them as human beings. Guys, thank you well, so much for allowing me to talk on this show, and I'll be listening. Appreciate the call. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the call, caller. Uh, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, we, you know, we as a radio show, we, we've done this uh, every Tuesday almost for eight years, and we don't get paid. Uh, we do it out of our own pocket. We do it out of our, our own sense of whether it's a hobby or whether we do it out of the sense of, of trying to do the right thing and paying the good life that we've gotten from this country and paying it forward. We still do this and we don't do it with a lot of accolades and we don't do it with a lot of heraldry, but you know, if we can get, if, if we get two or three callers like that, that listen to the show and, and, and actually appreciate what we're trying to do, uh, that kind of makes it worth it. I may be wrong, but that kind of, that kind of makes me feel good. Uh, let, let's take a break real quick. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about, uh, some of the issues that we've got in the White House, uh, not to mention the fact that we've got a situation where the president apparently wants to talk about tariffs and not tell his administration. 
And we also have another problem where it could get a little sticky for Javanka there in the White House. They might be looking to relocate back to Manhattan. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Please stay with us for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as I do every Tuesday is Sharon Lachari, the Honorable Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine. Uh, Dan Lipner Esquire had to drop off. Hopefully, he'll join us back later in the show. You know, I want to take a break from uh, bashing the White House because, you know, doing it every week for two hours is just a tough business. I want to actually talk about some good news that happened. In Charleston, West Virginia, uh, just the other day, or just today, rather, I should say, Uh, in case you don't know, uh, there was a teacher strike that's been going on for the past nine days 
out in the state of West Virginia. Now, West Virginia is not a collective bargaining agreement state. It is a right-to-work state. Uh, It is uh, a state that has had strong union ties, but in a blood-red state that currently is West Virginia, those unions tend not to hold a whole heck of a lot of stroke these days. However, uh, the teachers' union held what could almost be called a a march, a sit-in, a just big political showing at the Capitol in West Virginia. Well, today it was announced by both sides that they had, in fact, come together for an agreement. It would be there were many issues that they were dealing with. However, the biggest issues happen to be regarding pay. Uh, first of all, let me go to let me go to uh, Admiral Ken. Admiral Ken, why is this a big news story? Why should we be interested or concerned about this story? Uh, <laughs> well, I think number one, um, it, it's because um, uh, to your point, um, unions have not done particularly well in West Virginia. Um, and um, it, it appears that this is, you know, the, the first time that I can think of in, in, in quite a while that um, uh, an organization that supposedly, supposedly has, you know, union representation um, through organizations like the NEA um, came up against uh, their government and, and, uh, to, to demand more pay and one, I remember uh, some number of years ago, maybe it was Wisconsin uh, that had a, um, a similar type of uh, uh, uprising. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to remember, perhaps someone else on the call will, what the outcome of that was. But yeah, my, my memory of, was, of it was that it did not go, it did not go very far. Um, I guess secondarily, um, um, West Virginia is a, is a blood red state. Um, I think that uh, you know if if this seems to be part of the turn um, against, um, I guess, the, 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 the conservative establishment. Uh, there, there might be some belief that this is, you know, uh, part of a bigger indicator. Um, I didn't, I didn't pay as much attention to it, I think, as, as, as I did to, to the Hope Hicks thing. Um, but um, I, I think that right now in this country, there seems to be just a lot of churn. And I'm interested. I'm very interested to see how how the dust is going to settle um, uh, by by January of uh, of next year, December of this year, uh, to see how much the political landscape is going to change. Sharmila uh, Chari, same question to you. Why should we Why should we be interested in twenty thousand teachers walking out of fifty five schools statewide in a blood red state like Virginia or West Virginia? Well, I think it's pretty remarkable what the teachers were able to do through collective action, right? I mean, the circumstances were pretty dire. West Virginia's teachers were some of the lowest paid in the nation. West Virginia has pretty poor educational outcomes, and you can't help but link that to the fact that teachers may be dispirited and demoralized and the fact that if you're paying the lowest salaries in the country, you're not going to attract the best talent to be educators. Um, I think that the fact that you not only had all these teachers come on board and support the protest, but you also had the students and the parents come out to support them in such 
a strong and united way was really something was so something so extraordinary. And I think it's some, in these days, kind of as the caller was talking about about partisanship and tribalism. I think it was just so incredibly rare and unique to see such a unifying such a unifying event on so many sides. And I think that that's why, I mean, even though it's nine days that these kids have been out of school, I think that's why you saw this, this, um, this strike resolved in a way that actually made everyone happy. Alan Moore, is, is the bigger story the fact that we saw a, a, unified, a unified focused message from the teachers and parents and students going up against a entrenched Republican governor and Republican state legislature? Or is it the fact that, you know, a state like West Virginia, who has not been known for its academic excellence, has taken a step forward in saying, you know what, maybe we need to make this right? You know, I in the old phrase that all politics are local, um, uh, I'm not sure what kind of broader national conclusions might draw. West, as we've said, West, West Virginia is a low-performing state. It's a low-paying state. It's also a poor state. Um, it's a relatively inexpensive state in which to live, but um, politicians have to make these balancing decisions all the time teachers are pretty popular um at a time when 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 we're worrying about school safety and guns uh in schools there's an enormous amount of sympathy towards schools towards teachers towards administrators um i was pretty surprised i think i i can't remember i'm not sure i know there was some question about what they were doing and whether, whether under the Constitution, in uh, in in West Virginia, you're even it, it's even legal to 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 strike, um, which is is in effect uh, what this was. That's not been a major issue. I'm not saying it should have been. It's just an interesting sidebar uh, to the conversation. Um, but but uh, it was a it because it was in the the whole state. And because you could look at these salary numbers and you could look at school performance numbers, um, it, 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 and because there was a, a Trump fatigue of a kind, it's like any story but Trump would be a nice change, and this is not a small one. Um, uh, it, it got this attention. I'm just not sure what, what it means uh, for anybody else because there is no school district, there's no state in the country that's not wrestling with how to keep good teachers, how to improve um, strength and performance, and how to pay for it all at, at, a, at a time when, uh, uh, when there are plenty of other demands on, on, uh, uh, on state and local governments. I mean, one of the things that, that, that intrigued me about this is the fact that you, you, you've got such a Republican stronghold at the state capitol in the governor's mansion there in West Virginia, it, it what, what strikes me is is that the turnout, the voice, the unified voice of teachers, and as Alan, you pointed out, at a time when you know teachers are worried about 
how are they going to pay for textbooks and everything else? Not, not yet having to worry about, am I going to be picked to have to arm myself in the classroom to do school safety issues? At a time when all of these challenges are facing teachers today, they turn around in one unified voice bringing the parents and students together, and they weren't asking for the world, I don't think. I think that they went in there with a very direct message saying, look, we just want what's fair. They had been seeing rising costs in insurance premiums. They have not gone down. They had not seen a raise in several cycles. Uh, they said, look, at least give us some relief on surviving. Just surviving would be nice. And to the credit of the governor, to the credit of the state legislature, which is Republican-run, uh, they thought they had a deal last week with the governor. He had said a 5% raise would be in order. The House, uh, the House agreed, the state House agreed with them. It was the state Senate that reneged on the deal. And they have since turned around and, as of today, had approved a bill that would not only give 5% raises to all 55,000 teachers, but also to all state employees, something that no state employees have had. You know, is this just a matter of are we going to see more strikes? Because I know for a fact, Sharm Lachari, you know, the state of Oklahoma, teachers in Oklahoma are thinking about doing the same thing. They saw the results. Are, are we going to see similar uh, peaceful demonstrations and peaceful resistance like what we saw in West Virginia from other states possibly? Sharmila? No, oh, we lost Sharmila, I guess. Sorry, can you hear me? Can you hear yeah. me? Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. I was going to say, I can't say with certainty that you're going to see the same demonstrations, but the positive outcome in West Virginia is certainly an encouraging sign for any other, for any teachers who are considering, you know, doing the same actions because they also feel that they're, you know, overutilized and underpaid. I think another, I think that state legislatures should also take, um, take a lesson from this to see that, look, like the teachers and the parents and the students here had sort of the overwhelming public support and kind of moral high ground in this, you know, as, as much as, you know, my conservative friends like to talk about fiscal responsibility and, you know, everyone's got to tighten their belts, you saw the public was really on the side of the teachers here and the parents and the students were all on the same side. So I think that gives state legislatures a pause and I think it gives more leverage to these teachers unions coming in where state legislatures may agree to terms more readily than they would have otherwise because they know that if if this comes to a head, that the PR will go very badly against them. But, uh, Admiral Ken, you, you know, we, 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 look at, we look at this and, you know, we, we, we see the results that the teachers got in West Virginia – at the same time, you know, we've got to balance school safety issues with these teachers. You know, we, we just saw the introduction of uh, several pieces of legislation, uh, including, you know, including some at the state level. I know for a fact that here in the state of Florida, they've already talked about putting in uh, and, have, and have provided for funding for uh, school resource officers or armed school officers in every school in the state. Uh, they're, they're talking about now even arming teachers. You know, when, when we look at 
the teachers and all the responsibilities that they have, is it right now to put not only the education of our youth on their shoulders, but to also put the physical property security and the protection uh, against uh, active shooters in their laps as well? So uh, before I answer your question, uh, I, w- I want to stipulate that my, uh, my perspective on this is not objective. Uh, I am I am the son of educators. As a matter of fact, in a family of educators, I'm the only one that went to the military. The rest are teachers at uh, the collegiate, high school, secondary, and uh, elementary level. My sister is a former member of the school board in uh, in my hometown. So that said, putting guns possibly the stupidest thing I've heard um, in a, in a very long time. Um, I, I it, it, it senses me so much. But, something glib to, glib to describe it. So, no, it is not fair. It's not appropriate. It is not, why they, it is not why they are there. They are not there to protect and serve and educate. They're there to educate. And I think that uh, responsible leadership from our civic, uh, elected civic officials demands that they find a better way than trying to basically arm the teachers. And, uh, I, you know, and I've said it before in this show, every time I think, about the idea of arming teachers, and this is no disrespect to teachers at all, but the image of, of uh, Deputy Barney Fife with the shaky hands from the, the Andy Griffith show comes to mind. Not their role, <laughs> not what they should be doing. Alan Moore, you know, this seems to be the sentiment that, that Admiral Ken puts out, uh, seems to be the view of a lot of Americans that I've seen polls on, and even Americans I've talked to, tend to take the, the track that Admiral Ken does, but yet it seems to fall on deaf ears every time we walk it into Congress, we walk it into state legislatures, and in particular, recently we've seen it with the Trump two-step coming out of the White House. What, what is the barrier between hearing the public outcries for sensible school safety but not arming teachers? Where's that break? Well, I'm a little confused. So was arming teachers an issue in the strike in West Virginia? Or have we just No, it wasn't. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a pivot. It was a segue over to another teacher yeah, issue. No, that that because because I think the, the, the school safety issue, forget, forget arming teachers, which we've all said is a bad idea. I think I'm, I'm the only one who said, I think it's a dumb idea, but if a local district somewhere in rural area comes to the conclusion that it makes sense there, then I'd like to hear about it. But, but I don't think that was an issue in, in West Virginia, but what is an issue in West Virginia and every other school district around the country is school safety. Uh, the hardening of uh, uh, of the of the, sc- the school facilities has been going on at considerable expense, and usually that comes out of education budgets. Um, and and uh, <laughs> Sharmila kind of threw out a little dismissive reference to people who worry about how you pay for everything that you want to do. Um, that's what legislators have to do. 
Um, most of these states have uh, balanced budget requirements. Um, I don't, I'm not saying 5% was enough. Maybe it should have been 8%. Um, uh, and and uh, the, the problem in West Virginia was they cut a deal with the governor at 5%, and then he couldn't deliver one house of the legislature, and the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the strike went on. Um, but the, the, the problem of paying for everything with, uh, uh, I mean, the federal, the federal government just borrows. We just pay and we don't worry about uh, building up deficits. It's a lot easier than cutting spending or raising taxes. Uh, and we pray for more economic growth um, and try not to screw that up too badly. Um, at least some people do. And, and, uh, but, but in the, in the case of West Virginia, poor state, poor educational outcomes, relatively low paid teachers came together. Apparently, as I said before, violated the law and going out on strike. Um, uh, but that <laughs> that's kind of being pushed aside. I mean, I don't think anything, any of these are like wonderful, um, examples or, or, or precedents, um, uh, having said that, I don't have any problem with with uh, with workers making demands and using the leverage uh, uh, that they have, and then it uh, then it's up to elected officials who represent all interests and have to make all of the balancing decisions about how much revenue to take in and and how to divvy it up. Um, and uh, I have no no quarrel with with uh, with with the the merits uh, or with how it got worked out. Um, and I, I don't know that all states, if they have laws against the strike of public employees would be, uh, would, would be uh, willing to stand to the side or whether all teachers, which is pretty amazing would participate because a lot of people live pay, paycheck to paycheck. And uh, if you start uh, going on strike, um, uh, you can have a massive, uh, major financial squeeze, um, and uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and uh, well, well, you know, it, along it, those lines, though, along those lines, on I, I do want to point out that one of the one of the most heartwarming things I saw during the strike out in West Virginia was that teachers that were on strike. Who knew? I mean, because the school lunch program is a big deal out in West Virginia, a lot of kids out in West Virginia get their most wholesome meals at school through school breakfast and school lunch programs. What was amazing to me that out of the 55,000 teachers that were in the state Capitol over the past nine days, they had roving patrols of teachers going out and bringing meals to these kids to make sure that the strike didn't affect their health, their nutrition, which I thought was truly remarkable. But, you know, again, you know, we see that, and then we see what happened in Parkland, you know, just now two and a half, almost three weeks ago. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems to me that Admiral Ken, when we, when we talk about, the good work that teachers are supposed to do with limited resources and the limited fiscal 
capabilities that they have. We already put enough on teachers. Is it fair to take and rob Peter, teachers, teacher pay, teacher benefits, and classroom supplies to pay Paul in school safety to come out of school budgets? Is that a fair trade, or are we missing the boat on something? No, it's not a fair trade. It's not. It's not. It's not a. It's not a uh, a sustainable solution. Um, I think that the the uh, the placing of resource officers in every school in Florida, as as you've reported, is putting a band aid on a on a much larger problem, and uh, it is not it is not a sustainable solution. So no, I mean I, I very clearly remember my 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 mom uh, using her pay uh, to buy uh, teaching supplies uh, when I was a kid. And my sister doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, when, when, when asked about it, they just said, this is just what you have to do because there's not enough money in the system. And this is going back, you know, 40, 40 years that this has been going on. So, no, it's not. It's not fair. And, and again, I think that, um, and this, this falls in line with the conversation that we were having last week, um, hope is already dissipating on my part that, Anything substantive uh, is going to be done uh, by folks in Washington, D.C. and in the state capitals to address the problem of gun violence in this country. Um, both sides seem to be intractable. Uh, the, the left doesn't want to give up uh, protecting people's uh, rights under HIPAA, and the right doesn't want to give up assault rifles. And as with most things in life, goodness is somewhere in the middle. Everybody's got to be able to give something up here. And um, so I don't. I'm not going to get behind any idea that's going right. to reduce the amount of money going into education. I'm a product of public education. I, I, I'm proud of that. I did not go to a private school before I went to the Naval Academy. Uh, I didn't go to a private prep school before I went to the Naval Academy. I, I went to a public college to get my graduate degree. I am a product of public education. I am what happens when things go right. Uh, and if Dan were on the call, he'd probably disagree with that. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I think there's 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 it, it properly executed. We can do a lot more for to make 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 the right. the the, uh, the goal of being educated uh, greater for for a great greater number of people. That's a fantastic point. I'm going to let that be the last word on this, and we're going to move on. Uh, we've got uh, about 35 minutes left in the show, and I cannot not talk about the other big big news story coming out of Washington last week. Uh, it was uh, a surprise to everybody, including many in the administration. Last week, Donald Trump announced surprisingly to everybody that he was going to uh, invoke a tariff on foreign steel and foreign aluminum, uh, 25% on foreign steel, 10% on foreign aluminum. Uh, Still don't know why. Still thinking about it, still trying to figure it out, and it's gone against the grain of many in the president's party, as well as many foreign leaders. Uh, The economic effects just on the tariffs have yet to be seen, but the greater global fear, talking to several economists in around Washington and, and up in New York, they seem to think that this is the beginning, this is the first shot in what could become an ugly, nasty trade war. 
Uh, Alan Moore, as the Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, does this even remotely make sense to you? Not to me. No, um, it, it, for, two, for, for multiple reasons, starting with the authority that the president is invoking, which is a very, very little used portion of the law that is intended to deal genuinely with national security concerns. And when national security comes to, to, to bear, um, presidents historically have some, some unique and special powers. The president is choosing to use that authority because he, it's his because he has the ability unilaterally to do something. He doesn't have to get it through Congress. Um, uh, so it, it starts with this odd business. It, having said that, throughout his campaign uh, and and his presidency, he talks about horrible trade deals and trade deficits that America has with all of these other countries. And it's like he has a mental block. He, he, he looks at a country and says, do we have a trade surplus or a trade deficit with them? And if it's a deficit, he looks at the number and says, they're cheating us by whatever that number is. And he appears to have no understanding at all of the fact that Countries with certain natural resources, certain capabilities, um, uh, produce the things that, that, that they can produce to their, pardon the phrase, comparative advantage, and they sell to others, and who hopefully they sort of swap stuff. But if you think about, if you think about countries that have no oil or very little oil, China would be a good example. China doesn't produce much oil, and China consumes an enormous amount of oil, a growing amount, because it is uh, an economy that has been growing uh, gangbusters. China is going to have um, – starts out with a deficit with anybody that it imports uh, oil from. It needs the oil. It pays whatever it has to pay. It tries to go and help countries that are producers. It's investing in various oil-producing countries around the world because it wants to keep the oil flow working. It's not a weakness of China that it, that it might have a trade deficit with a country because it's importing a lot of oil from that country. Now, in the case of China, they, they, they also produce a massive amount of consumer product and a consumer good, and they do it very well, very efficiently and with relatively cheap labor. So it turns out that China typically has a big trade surplus with most countries, including the United States. Um, it, it is not a, a, a point of weakness to just look at the numbers on the page, as the president does again and again and again, and even last week um, when he talked about how easy it is to fix this stuff. It's not easy. It's horrendously complicated and potentially disruptive. And what we're seeing already is if he follows through on the current plan, 25% tariff on all steel imports, 10% on all aluminum imports, um, notwithstanding countries like 
Canada, who's our, who's our biggest steel supplier, who, so far as anybody knows, is not cheating, it's not subsidizing, it's not dumping, it's steel. It just produces it, um, uh, and we buy a lot of it, um, although we produce 80% of our own. So, so it's only 20% of our steel market that, that we're even talking about, and the biggest importer, uh, the biggest exporter to us is, is Canada. So, and, and the so Europeans me- do. And what they, what, I'll, I'll, just, I'll finish here. Um, the, the great risk is simply retaliation. We're going we're gonna to just unilaterally slap a tariff on European steel and aluminum, let's say, um, and, and they're going to say, you can't just do that. If you're going to do that, we're going to slap steel. We're going to slap a tariff on U.S. farm products, on Levi's, um, on, uh, on machines, machinery. They're going to they're gonna, the they're gonna, they're gonna slap tariffs on Harley-Davidson's, on Ford's, Chrysler's, on GM Whiskey. products, on Kentucky Bourbon, Jack Daniels, Tennessee Smash. Uh, this makes no sense. To me, Alan Moore. Real quickly, Alan Moore, in a quick second uh, uh, answer on this one is: you mentioned that Canada is our number one importer. Of, we import more steel from Canada than anybody else. Uh, yep. We import. Uh, we import the second most importer. Oddly enough, is Mexico, from where we get a I'm not second, sure it's second most. But it, 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 it's top I think three. In the top five. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, to me. To me but, that logically says all we're doing is making enemies of the guys next door our biggest trading partners. How does how does well we've, al- how we've, does al- we've already dumping steel? You know we've already made made enemies by saying that we need to go um, redo the the North Africa the, the North American Free Trade Agreement NAFTA, um, uh, and and those conversations. Uh, uh, are going on, and the president has talked in hugely exaggerated rhetoric about those um, uh, long since negotiated, useful for both countries, for all the countries' uh, trade agreements, by saying they were lousy deals and, and we need to tear them up and start over again, which is not what's going on in our trade negotiations with them, but, but it's, the, it's the president's rhetoric. It, 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 it defies understanding other than the fact that for 30 years, Donald Trump, the, the, the civilian, and Donald Trump, the candidate, and Donald Trump, the president, has, used, has talked in these terms about, um, uh, about trade deficits with other countries and how it's overdue, that we're, that we're getting taken to the cleaners, and it's time that we have a true negotiator and a tough guy who understands the stuff in charge to rework it. And the guy does not have a clue. He's Sharma, got two advisors. You, but, Sharma, go ahead. Two advisors yeah. who are pushing this. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and, Justin, uh, Justin, go ahead with your question. No, no, well, here's a question I got for Sharma. Is Sharma? It seems to me, you know, we've heard the we've heard the president saying that you know we're getting raw deals. China is dumping steel in our country and in the market here. Which, as Alan pointed out, and trust me. I trust Alan Moore on this subject a lot more than I trust Donald Trump. One has actually worked in this. The other one reads a coloring book that has steel workers in it. The, the, the reality is, 
you know, it seems to me that Donald Trump is placating to a very small, small base of Pennsylvania Rust Belt iron workers instead, you know, so he can keep them and they can say happy things about him rather than him actually him actually coming around and saying, hey, um, I got to look at what's best for our nation. He, he's placating to maybe one or two congressional districts versus the rest of the country. Right. Well, you saw him do the same thing with coal in West Virginia. Right. Everyone knows coal is a dying industry. And yet he talks about bringing back coal jobs and not investing in clean energy because there are pockets in West Virginia that love him and that want to hear this. But I think even even if he is placating these you know, few Rust Belt communities, they are not stupid. Right. Even those workers, they don't necessarily want steel jobs back. They just want good jobs. And whether those jobs are in new in, you know, sort of new tech companies or in sort of other emerging industries and other manufacturing, they want good, sustainable jobs, right? Like even the iron worker in Pennsylvania knows that, okay, if I get my, even if the iron plant comes back, like the the trends of the economy going the way they are, this job might only last me another five years. I'd much rather get, you know, have a new company come in and a new industry come in that can keep me employed for the next 20 years, right? And this is the, the thing with Donald Trump. He has zero long-term thinking, besides the fact, as Alan already pointed out, that he doesn't understand basic microeconomics, right? The fact that, you know, if you raise tariffs, if that will make the price of goods go up. If the price of goods go up, the cost to consumers will go up. People will be unhappy. Or companies' profits will go down, and they will be able to employ less people, people will be unhappy, right? Like these basic cause and effects don't occur to the man. But I think that, I think that more than anything, it, it demonstrates the fact that he is incredibly myopic in his thinking and there's no long-term strategy here. Everything is just lurching from one crisis to another, one sort of knee-jerk reaction to the next. And that's why, I mean, uh, that's why on top of his, you know, general lack of knowledge about almost every subject, that there is no consistency there is no consistent policy agenda coming out of this White House. And Admiral Ken, does it does it make sense, or is there any credibility where the president says this is a matter of national security? It seems to be that's what he's invoking the power, as Alan pointed out, that this is a national security issue, not so much an economic equality issue. Does it make sense that he's using it, and does it hold water? Well, in Trump's world. It makes perfect sense because look at it. If he makes it about national security, he doesn't have to do the hard work of, of, of uh, building the case to, uh, to, to, to write and build policy. Uh, he doesn't have to go out and sell that policy to Congress and the Senate and the, and the, uh, and the country. You know, by declaring it you know, part of a, a national security um, uh, priority, he can you know, pretty much kind of – do what he wants to do. I, I think it's ironic that he's looking at de- declaring um, uh, making tariffs uh, on aluminum and steel as a national security priority, whereas he has done absolutely nothing, nothing. Uh, uh, well, as far as we know, he's done nothing about um, the uh, the work that the, that the Russians are doing in the cyberspace uh, to impact uh, our, our, uh, our elections and the public opinion toward, uh, toward the people that are going to be running for office in, in November. 
And so that, in my mind, is a greater national security imperative than, uh, than, than causing the impact that he has had on the stock market, which anyone who's got a 401K is going to feel the impacts of, um, and, 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 and parading. And I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a page from the president's book. I will give out a moniker to someone. Wilbur Ross reminds me of Elmer Fudd. And having Elmer Fudd <laughs> come out and hold a Coke can up and say that there's only 2.2 cents of, of, uh, of increase in the price on a Coke or a beer can, and nobody's going to uh, complain about that. Well, Mr. Fudd, if you're only making 30 of a year, and the only comfort that you have is a six-pack of beer on a Friday night, uh, raising that by two cents, it makes a difference to those people. It really does. Well, and Alan Moore, while we're on the topic, sorry, can I give you guys some breaking breaking news? I just got an alert from the New York Times. Gary Cohen is planning to resign. What? Really? We have not seen that here. Just came across the wire. Wow. That is big news. Uh, Alan Moore, hold on. We're getting, we're going to get word on that right now. If that is true. Um, we're going to keep an eye on that. We'll get some Audrey, if you're listening, get me some info on that. Thank you, our associate producer up in Washington D.C. <laughs> but let, let's go back to the tariff thing, and we'll do deal with that in the last ten minutes. Alan Moore, I, you know, Admiral Ken brings up a very, very interesting point. You had Wilbur Ross going on all the Sunday talk shows, holding up a Campbell soup can, saying that it is, um, you, you know, it, it, it's not a big deal. Uh, nobody's going to feel this. Does, when you when you watch Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, say that, notwithstanding the fact that if they do invoke this tariff and they do, they're going to be shutting down places like Harley Davidson, places like Levi Jeans. They're going to have a tremendous economic impact. Where does Wilbur Ross understand his economics from when he says that it's just a soup can? It's nothing bigger than that. I have no idea. I mean, I, I think I, I took a look at, at some of the work that, that they had produced, um, where they where they were claiming there wouldn't be that big of an that, that large of an impact. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, there's a lot more steel users and steel ma- uh, manufacturers of, of products that that utilize steel and or aluminum uh, than there are producers of steel. We produce today about the same amount of steel that we did 30 years ago with about 40% number, the same number of workers. The, the, the biggest problem for steel is, is not imports, it's robots, it's productivity, it's improvements in, uh, in, in, in the manufacturing process. And the fact that most of the steel uh, work today is specialized steel made from, uh, from in effect, reused, recycled uh, scrap steel. Um, it, it, it's an industry that's completely changed. We're not going to be bringing back the great gigantic um, uh, U.S. steel companies uh, of the past. It, it, it's, it, it's not a, it's not a more, possibility. And, and, and we've Alan, got all of and, but yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this question. Is it irresponsible of the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, to equate this type of economic potential trade war to uh, you're only going to feel it when you buy a can of beer. It's governmental malpractice um, to the to the highest degree, um, and it plays though to the president's ignorance. Um, 
Gary Cohn, who uh, it, it, it's interesting that, that there's a bigger issue here involved, and, and that is the one that 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 would would be one of one of the many reasons that Gary Cohn would be resigning, which is that the president had, and 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 Jeff Kelly might not be far behind. Um, when you when you run a White House, you try to have an orderly policy process. You want all voices to be heard, and you need a process in which to do that. And big decisions normally historically take time because issues are very complicated. What what the president did in this case was he apparently got very frustrated with how long this is taking. He's been asking for tariffs for months, so it's reported. And he was calling for them during the, camp, the campaign, of course. He's frustrated about everything else that's going on. He's frustrated about, uh, about uh, Robert Mueller. He's frustrated about uh, scandals inside the White House, staff turnover, his daughter, his son-in-law, his re- reported uh, affairs with porn stars and, 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 um, and Playboy models. And he's feeling like, He's constricted. He can't doesn't have the free uh, wheeling uh, ability to make decisions that he thought he deserved and that he should have. And here's a case where he's apparently between Wilbur Ross and this guy Peter Navarro, who's a who's a, a trade advisor, um, uh, who's up and been up and down and up and down in terms of his own uh, influence. Um, are those two voices are saying you can do this, Mr. President, and you don't have to wait on anyone. And he sitting in a meeting that's supposed to be a listening session with aluminum and steel producers and just decides this is what we're going to do. Now, and Alan Moore, there's no, and Alan Moore. There's no, there's no sharing of information. And right. If he operates like that on this issue, it's a reminder that he has the potential to operate like that on any issue out there. You can't and- run a presidency that way. And by the way, uh, Backroom Politics can now confirm uh, NBC News is now reporting what the New York Times just put out, and a a source of ours inside the administration is confirming that uh, Gary Cohen, the president's economic advisor, is in fact resigning and leaving the Trump administration. Uh, Sharma, you know – we brought up the why. Why should this scare Americans as far as Gary Cohn? I mean, this is not a name commodity in a lot of Americans' homes. Is this a decision that's going to affect a lot of people possibly in their pocketbook? Well, I think that it, it should be scary for Americans, not so much for their pocketbook, just, but just because Gary Cohn was one of the few competent people surrounding the president who protected the American people from his more <laughs> bananas decisions, including this tariff, right? Gary Cohn is leaving the White House because he lost this tariff fight, and I think he saw that he was dealing with a more and more irrational leader who didn't listen to, like, common economic sense, right? And this is common sense coming from not just Democrats. Gary Cohn is known as a Democrat, right? That's, that's not a secret, but this is common sense not coming from Democrats. It's coming from most traditional Republicans. And the only people who are advocating for it are these super hard right. I don't even know if you can call them hard right. But these, you know, out of their gourds economic nationalists who think that just by raising, you know, 
think by raising these sort of protectionist borders, we're suddenly going to, you know, rejolt the American economy and, you know, have everyone back to the 1950s where anyone, you know, everyone made $80,000 a year and drove a Ford Mustang, right? Like those days are not coming back. And, you know, who ignore the fact that we now have a global supply chain. So I think that, but I think, you know, on top of the, on top of the economic issues, Gary Cohn was also a moderating voice on social issues and just, you know, I think was one of those people who could help temper and diffuse the president's erratic and irrational directives. And so I think the American people should be very worried that he's gone because that's one less moderating. As much as you can moderate this president, he was an important moderating voice who's now going to be gone. I mean, Admiral Ken, from the Republican side, you know, they're now talking about the potential departure of National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Uh, We've now seen the departure now being reported and confirmed of uh, Gary Cohen. It seems that all the adults in the room are leaving the administration. Is this something that is, is, is this the spark that is going to get the Republicans to say, okay, now we've got a problem? No. You don't think so? No. No. Why? I, I, think, I think if you go back, if you go back, and it's not hard to do, and you see just the, uh, the, 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 the sheer number of maniacal things that, has, that, that have come out of the president's mouth, um, out of his administration, and you still have got um, people like Paul Ryan um, dancing around, taking the president on, uh, on anything, uh, and you know, and I saw, and I saw the best dancing act uh, on this tariff thing that I've seen you know, so far. No, I don't think so. I, I think it's going to basically take something big. It's going to take Rex Tillerson. It's going to take uh, um, Secretary of Defense Mattis, uh, basically saying, you know what, we're done here. You know, when those two guys leave. That's when the Republicans in the in the Congress and the Senate are going to say, "Okay, we got a problem." I mean, That's Alan when those Moore, guys go. I, don't they already have some sort of suicide pact? I don't know. About that. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just say that. But you know, there's it's a not big awareness. There's a big awareness out there that they got a problem. They just don't know what to do about it, so they end up being quiet or. You watch Paul Ryan, and it's fascinating because he'll say things that I'm sure in his mind are huge, significant pushbacks to the president, including on tariffs. But they come across as so gentle and quiet that they're just lost. And and these guys, they 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 don't know what to do. But it's not because they love Trump. It's just that they're afraid of Trump, which is particularly disheartening. They're putting. They are putting their political livelihoods ahead of the, the, the good of the country. That's what they're doing. Well, and it is political cowardice is what it is. Guys like Jeff Flake, I mean, uh, guys like Jeff Flake, they get a little bit of credit but not that much because he, he quit. He's, re- he, he's retiring rather than taking this person on. But you've got to have voices like that that are basically standing up saying, okay, enough is enough. And I don't think we're there yet. Well, Alan Moore, let me well, ask you this question. He, I, think, I, think Flake, I think Flake took him on in a huge way, but he concluded that by doing that, he, would, he made himself uh, unelectable in, uh, in, in Arizona. 
Um, and so but, he, Alan, I think he saw the handwriting on the wall and said, I'm, I'm stepping aside. Yeah, um, but Alan Moore, <laughs> Alan Moore let, me, let me just jump in on this because I, I want to ask you, with, you know, we, we keep talking about the adults in the room and, and we keep going back to the same group of people, H.R. McMaster, Gary Cohen there in the White House. We go to uh, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary of State, Secretary Mattis, Secretary of Defense. As we start seeing them leaving, even Jeff Sessions uh, is having his own problems. As we start to see this, you know, Hope Hicks, the communications director, okay, but these are some of the president's top logical and credible advisors. At what point does the party say, hey, enough's enough. We've got to stop the hemorrhaging or else we're not going to recover. Well, I, 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 I think that, that I, I don't know what you mean when you say the party is going to say, because I think, I think there's already people running for the exits because they've reached that conclusion. They don't know what else to do. They're hoping for some future work. So, you know, you've got all these committee chairs in the House that are just saying, yeah, I don't like the look of things. Um, and 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 I'm going to step down. I'm going to retire. I'm I'm out of here. Gary Cohn. They've been talking about him leaving since uh, since Charlottesville and his reaction to the grotesque comments that the president had to say uh, about that. And so there's kind of been this watch of on Cohn, and he reportedly said with regard to the tariffs that if if he were to if the president imposes those, then Cohn's done. That'll be the final straw. So. You know, I haven't heard until we said it tonight, but that that, it, that that it's now being reported, which suggests there's an actual timetable. But there's no surprise there, not 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 to me. Um, I'm kind of surprised he's been around as long as he has as as he has. Tillerson, I don't put at the same level. Tillerson's got his own unique problems. He has not been a great Secretary of State. I think we could even in this environment do better than Tillerson. Mattis is a different matter. Um, Mattis is the guy, and Mattis completely and fundamentally disagrees with the tariff stuff. He says, this is not a national security issue. It's a greater national security threat to impose these tariffs and disrupt well-established economic relationships that we have all over the world. That's the national security problem. Keep Keep your eye on Mattis. Now, Mattis is also, you know, as a longtime military man, feels this great duty to the country and to the department yeah. and yeah. and uh, and to those who serve so you know i think he'll be he'll be he'll be one of the last to go kelly on the other hand has got to deal with this stuff every day day in day out and and suffer the wrath uh personally of uh of the president. And I'm not saying Kelly's perfect. We've seen him do some really stupid things too, which were so depressing. He's still one of the, he's still one of the adults in the room. He is still well, one of the no, adults no, no, in the room. That's, but, but I, I agree. I, you know, it's like if he goes, then who, because which, just which about anybody who, who you, anybody, anybody who's a real grown up out, out there has said something critical of this president on typically multiple occasions, and that is that that becomes a disqual- disqualifying um, uh, qualification. So, so if Kelly goes, 
then who? Stephen Miller? Okay. I mean, where, where do you go? So, so now let's it's, go. Now we go really to the part. Really frightening. Now we go to. I got you. So now we go to this part where we talk about the ejection seat, the ejection seat pool of who is going to bail out next. We're seeing again for those who are just now catching up. It is uh, been confirmed by Backroom Politics that in fact uh, Gary Cohen, the president's economic advisor, is in fact resigning. Uh, as Alan pointed out, it's it's surprised it's taken this long, but. Out of all the adults, let's go around the table. Who leaves next? Who's the next one to pull the ejection ripcord? Admiral Ken, I want to start with you. Uh, gosh. Um, I'm thinking Attorney General Sessions. Uh, either he's going to really? get pushed out the door, or he's going to punch. Uh, I think. I think the. the yeah, I think more. 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 Uh, more likely the uh, the latter. He's going to get pushed out, but I think he's going to be the next one to go. Sharmila Chari, who's next to pull the ripcord? I think it'll be General McMaster. There's a lot of credible reporting about how he and the president don't have a great relationship, and the president has been making moves to push him out. Alan Moore? I agree with Sharmila McMaster. I, you think, I think it's going to be a race. I think it's either going to be McMaster or Kelly. It's going to be. I think if one goes, the other drops immediately. It's amazing. So is this is it's this a, is this the uh, is this the backroom politics Deadpool? I like this. This is good. <laughs> it, it, I was I was trying not to use that term. We were using the ejection seat pool, but we can use the uh, backroom politics Deadpool. I will post that. I will post that on Facebook too, so we can see. Uh, the the last thing I got to talk about, and again, there has been so much. I'm exhausted just trying to moderate this. Uh, real quickly. Um, there are reports now coming out that uh, while apparently Alan Moore is playing with his CD collection, <laughs> there are reports coming out uh, of several sources of several sources that believe that uh, Jared Kushner could be in somewhat legal exposed trouble regarding his financial dealings, as reports have come out in several in in several. Um, uh, media outlets that have said that uh, he got his company, the company that his family owns, got special financing after meetings were held inside the White House. If true, this could be the beginning of the unraveling of Jared and Ivanka. Uh, Admiral Ken, is this the beginning of, I mean, is Ivanka right now packing up boxes and getting ready to go back to New York? Yeah. She's a smart woman. Uh, I, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that um, uh, when when the the final final analysis and the final um, report reporting's out, uh, there's probably going to be three three names at the top of uh, Mueller's hit list: uh, Jared Kushner, um, those the the group of guys that that, that he's already uh, got uh, charges filed against in, in President Trump. Charmelette, we got five minutes left in the show. Real quickly, uh, how big of a legal exposure does Jared and Ivanka Kushner have right now? I think Jared Kushner is in serious jeopardy. I think that the more stories that I think, you know, now you're getting more and more public stories about sort of the level of corruption that he is allegedly engaging in, and I think that these stories are very, very bad for him. So, hi. 
does Alan Moore real quickly four minutes left? Uh, do, does does this embolden or empower with everything that we've seen in the past week coming out of the White House regarding Jared, regarding the security clearance, regarding the financing? Does all of this plus the tariffs? plus the bad decision-making that's going on regarding gun uh, issues. Does this embolden Mitt Romney as far as his run for Senate? I think it just, for I don't know about emboldening him. He's running. He's inspired. Um, and he's got to get elected first, and he's got to win on the issues that matter the most to, to Utah. And then if he gets elected, we'll, we'll see what he does. We'll see who's in control in the Senate. Uh, regarding regarding uh, Kushner, I've read quite a bit about these meetings. They look horrendous. Okay, it is those old appearance of conflict. It's embarrassing. I'm guessing. I'm guessing because he did pretty much separate, not totally, but pretty much separate from the family and from everything I've read and and, and so on. I'm guessing there was no quid pro quo there. It's just the problem of the appearances of things and always having to talk about it is, is, and it contributes to him having trouble getting a security clearance. And then there's all these questions that you see where people, you know, the, the leaks out of the white house, nobody knows what Jared does. And it's aimed at Jared, not Ivanka more, more, uh, the most. Uh, now, he's got a bigger optics, portfolio. Um, I mean, optics, so, optics are just, reality in Washington. Optics are reality well, in Washington the, these days. Right. I'm just I'm I'm I'm, it, I'm not saying the legal jeopardy is all with just think it become he becomes politically untouchable with the possible exception of the famous meeting in Trump Tower with the Russians. And, right. um, you know, there's stuff we don't know that 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 may be uh, right. legal jeopardy. This is just embarrassing. And it and it and it and it looks like a conflict. I'm, my hunch is it's not one. It just looks really bad. But so okay. does almost everything around him these days. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, listen, we've got uh, just under two minutes left in the show. I want to thank uh, Sharmila Chari, uh, Admiral Ken, uh, Admiral Ken Carradine, and Alan Moore. I want to thank Dan Lipner also for joining us. They do every Tuesday. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back live next Tuesday. Uh, I will still be in the great state of Florida, uh, but we will be back live next Tuesday on the best political talk show you've never heard of. This has been Backroom Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on our Facebook feed, facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. And you'll see an updated, coming soon, you'll be seeing an updated version of our website, backroompolitics.org where you'll be able to listen to the radio show, meet the players around the table and, uh, and, and send us your comments as well. Have a great week, America. We'll see you. Thanks again, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.